Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, millions of undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. would have a path to citizenship in eight years or less under a sweeping reform bill President Biden submitted to Congress last week. Biden also issued executive orders preserving the DACA program, halting border wall construction, and ending the travel ban that targeted mostly Muslim countries. We review the Biden administration's immigration plan and its potential impact on California, home to the largest undocumented population in the country. Forum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. With some two million undocumented immigrants living in California, the immigration bill that President Biden sent to Congress on his first day in office has big implications for the state. It would provide an eight-year path to citizenship for people without legal status and a shorter three-year path for dreamers and farm workers, among other reforms. In this hour, we'll review the proposal and its chances of success and look at the immediate impact of Biden's executive orders on immigration. But joining us first is Liz Beth Mateo, a Los Angeles-based attorney who represents people in deportation cases, dreamers, people seeking asylum, and she's an undocumented immigrant herself. Lizbeth Mateo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. You know, just curious, I know Biden proposed this legislation less than a week ago, but have you or your colleagues already felt or noticed anything different when it comes to engaging with the federal government? Um. I am in the process of finding out if uh, there's been any changes yet. Um, I am actually applying for a stay of removal for one of my clients who has been living in the church for the past three years um, and has been threatened with exorbitant fines and criminal prosecution under the Trump administration. But I have heard from other colleagues that um, have dealt with immigration, have reached out to uh, the Office of Chief Counsel and uh, immigration officers inside um, detention centers. And the tone has changed a little bit. 
Um, they're more open to talking to attorneys and entertaining um, possibilities of, you know, helping um, some immigrants stay in this country or at least being more fair in their decisions. So that's a, that's a good sign. Um, we'll see what happens in the next few days. Because what was it like for you and your clients under four years of President Trump? It was a complete nightmare. It was a, a being in constant, um, in a constant state of stress and, and worrying about about myself, first of all, but also about my clients, about uh, what else I could do to help them stay in this country because the immigration system is so broken that them going through court, the court system meant they could potentially lose their cases because the laws are just not fair. Um, and so it was always being worried, always um, in, at the expectation of what was the next big change that the Trump administration will announce to continue gutting asylum law and continue undermining um, the rights of my clients. I mean, you are currently in removal proceedings, even as you practice law on behalf of dreamers and undocumented immigrants like yourself, being that California is one, of course, one of a handful of states where undocumented immigrants can practice law. I mean, the fact that you are also in your own removal proceedings has to be complicated and stressful. I wonder how you manage it. It is stressful. Um, I have actually been in removal proceedings for 10 years, um, not in active removal proceedings uh, because the government has agreed to administratively close my case twice before. So I try to not think too much about it. Um, I am a very, <laughs> I'm a terrible client to have. I, I do have an attorney and I decided early on that I was going to have an attorney because I, I just don't... Um, always think about myself when it comes to my own case. So having an attorney, you know, she pushes me to do certain things, to pay attention to my case, to come up with a strategy on how we can win my case. For now, it's been nothing but wait. My case has been um, rescheduled or the hearings have been rescheduled to November of uh, this year. So we'll see what happens. But there is a lot of hope that at the very least, we can administratively close my case again or um, terminate the case um, once and for all so I'm no longer in removal proceedings. You have said that the more open you are about your status, the more protected you are. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that the fact that I am very open about my status and that people know that I am in removal proceedings for instance, when I started talking about the fact that I'm, again, in removal proceedings, a lot of people reached out, a lot of attorneys reached out and said, whatever you need, we can form an, an army of attorneys, we can create a best legal team for you, um, you know, we can sign petitions, we can demand that um, you're not removed from this country. So knowing that my community is behind me because they know my story, because they know the work that I've done over the years is... Um, is amazing. It makes me feel more safe. And I think that's one of the reasons why I don't worry too much about my case, or I don't, I don't constantly think about my case, I should say. Yes, though, I imagine it informs your ability to represent your own clients. Absolutely, it does. So you have seen proposals like President Biden's before you've actually seen those stall. So do you feel like meaningful change will be more likely with this Congress? I am very hopeful. I, I have seen uh, efforts uh, before, you know, dying Congress um, 
from a broad immigration reform bill to something smaller like the DREAM Act. But um, I am hopeful that we can finally have some change. I, I don't know if we have what it takes, and I don't know if the Democrats and the president are, are really um, invested in passing immigration reform, a broader bill that will legalize um, everyone who's undocumented, or at least the most number of people who are undocumented in this country currently, um, and what that bill will look like at the end of the day, because one thing is what gets introduced, and after negotiations, after the process, you know, we end up uh, with a watered-down version of uh, immigration reform, um, but I am hopeful that we can have some changes and hopefully we as a community and, and as advocates have learned that when it is not possible to have a broad immigration reform bill, we can still make significant changes that, yes, are smaller in nature, but are still very significant for um, undocumented immigrants for, you know, I think about my clients and the, and the reasons why many of them are not able to adjust status currently. And I hope that there are at least some uh, if if minor, but yet very significant changes. Mm, so if you had to prioritize what would be within a narrower uh, reform package, what what would you what would it be? What would be most important to you? Well, I think um, a pathway to legalization or at least temporary sta status for some people. Um, obviously, dreamers, um, I think, are at the top of the list um, by everyone because. You know, they're young people. The, the, the Dream Act is something that we can actually attain, and we should have been able to pass that bill over 10 years ago, but it didn't happen. And I think it is possible to happen now. Um, getting rid of the uh, of the three and 10 year bar, which a lot of my clients, you know, that's the reason why they can't adjust status. Those are two things um, that I, I will prioritize. Um, and I think there's a lot of other things that can be done to reform um, the way that immigration law works in, in immigration court as well, so that um, you know people have the chance, people who are in removal proceedings have the, the chance to actually have a fair hearing um, and uh, hopefully win their cases. Lizbeth Mateo, a Los Angeles-based immigration attorney, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. We're going to take a closer look now at Biden's immediate actions on immigration through executive orders and review the immigration bill that he sent to Congress. Joining me now are Deep Gulasekram, professor of law at Santa Clara University, where he teaches constitutional and immigration law. Deep Gulasekram, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UCSD. He served as an advisor to the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under President Obama. Tom K. Wong, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So a lot is happening on several fronts with Biden's series of executive orders rescinding Trump-era policies. And Deep Kulasekram, first with regard to DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that executive order says it preserves and fortifies the program. What does this mean? It's not uh, completely clear yet. We'll have to see what follows. But I think it, the president is showcasing a recommitment to the program, it was under obviously litigation in the in the Trump era and attempt at rescission. I think this makes clear what the president's intentions are, and that is to maintain the program as it was created while there's uh, legislation proposed that might actually provide broader benefits. I see. So because you know, for the moment, it's still temporary. 
That's correct. At this moment, anything that the executive does or through administrative action, the best it can do is to forbear prosecution against those individuals. It cannot, only Congress has the authority to grant legal status, lawful status. And so uh, anything with regards to DACA, to temporary status, are going to be, in a sense, limbo states. And Tom Wong, President Biden also issued an executive order on interior immigration enforcement, again with language that I'm wondering if you could explain. Biden's administration said it will, quote, reset the policies and practices for enforcing civil immigration laws to align enforcement with ideas and values that immigrants strengthen America's families, communities, businesses, workforce and economy. I mean, what does this mean practically? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I think it might be helpful for listeners to sort of envision a federal budget where Congress uh, allocates a certain number of monies for immigration enforcement. In previous administrations prior to Trump, that is, the Obama administration, for example, set enforcement priorities. What it said was that with the limited resources that Congress appropriates, we're going to focus those limited resources on high priority cases. For example, um, you know, listeners may remember phrases like felons, not families during the Obama administration. Well, the Trump administration then came, came in and uh, did what the Biden administration has just done in terms of rescinding uh, Obama era guidance uh, with respect to interior immigration enforcement. The Trump administration did have some uh, enforcement priorities, but for the most part, uh, all undocumented immigrants were, uh, for lack of a better term, fair game uh, under the Trump administration. So in terms of resetting priorities, I think what the Biden administration is hinting to is that DHS, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, will undergo a review of how uh, ICE and other DHS component agencies have worked on immigration enforcement and the, I think, ultimate outcome will be enforcement priorities that mirror Obama era enforcement priorities. We're talking about President Biden's executive orders, what they mean for California with Deep Gula Sacrum, Professor of Law at Santa Clara University, and Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UCSD. We'll have more after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're talking with Deep Gulasekaran, professor of law at Santa Clara University, where he teaches constitutional and immigration law, and Tom K. Wong, associate professor of political science at UC San Diego, who served as an advisor to the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under President Obama. We're talking about President Biden's executive orders and his immigration plan, what they mean for California, and you, our listeners, are with us. What are your questions about how President Biden's executive orders or his proposed immigration bill would affect you? Are you undocumented or a DACA recipient, or is your immigration status in limbo in any way? Also, do you think efforts at comprehensive immigration reform will succeed under this administration? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786 with your thoughts or questions or experiences. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And, and Tom Wong, just before the break, we were talking about uh, the executive order on interior enforcement and sort of teasing out what some of the language could mean. I understand that you felt that the Biden administration could have come out stronger in terms of resources that are used by borrowing language from California's SB 54 on how uh, local resources are used for deportation actions. Can you tell us why that kind of language from California's Values Act would have been appropriate here. Yeah, so the California Values Act, SB 54, is our so-called sanctuary state law. And when the Biden administration is considering how to change interior immigration enforcement, um, so a seismic shift, if you will, from Trump-era uh, policies to something new, then the California Values Act um, provides a template. So that's something new uh, in the form of the California Values Act would include stronger language about recognition of the contributions that undocumented immigrants uh, and immigrants more generally make to American society. But importantly, as a matter of policy, how trust in public institutions uh, by undocumented immigrants is really necessary for things like public safety, public health. We're in the middle of a pandemic still. And so the California Values Act acknowledges that local cooperation on federal immigration enforcement actually diminishes the trust that immigrant communities have in our public institutions. For example, with respect to law enforcement, being less likely to report crimes to law enforcement, even mm. if they themselves are victims. And when it comes to public health, um, that local entanglement with federal immigration enforcement also leads undocumented immigrants to be less trusting of public institutions in a way where if they are asked to disclose their personal information, whether it be their address or phone number, they're less likely to engage with public institutions like public health institutions that may be trying to, for example, talk about the COVID vaccine and how safe it is. And so that I think is a missed opportunity, at least in the rollout of the executive orders. Uh, but yeah. what we saw right after the interior immigration enforcement executive order was a DHS memo on a 100 day moratorium on deportations. And so I think the Biden administration uh, hit the ground running when it, when it comes to immigration policy. 
Um, and I expect that we will see a lot more on interior immigration enforcement that gets us closer to what we have done in California uh, via the California Values Act. And since you do bring up that moratorium, um, Tom Wong, can you explain who it applies to? Yes, yeah, so the 100-day moratorium on deportation. So one of the first things that listeners may uh, sort of wonder is, does this mean that no one will be deported? And there the answer is no. So in the DHS memo, the Department of Homeland Security is articulating certain categories of individuals that will still uh, be subject to immigration enforcement and deportation proceedings, for example, national security threats. Um, so the 100-day moratorium is not zero deportations for 100 days. But what the 100-day moratorium does is give undocumented immigrants who may be in removal proceedings some leverage when it comes to a review of the individual cases uh, such that some individuals may find themselves, um, you know, instead of being deported, having an opportunity to stay in the U.S. But with that 100-day moratorium, um, I think it's also important to note that as soon as that 100-day moratorium uh, memo came out, uh, the state of Texas filed suit. And the general strategy for immigration policy change, at least uh, sort of for progressive immigration advocates, was to fight Trump-era immigration policy changes through litigation. And in the first week of the Biden administration, it looks like uh, those on the sort of other end of the political spectrum may be adopting similar strategies. And so although there is immediate fruit from that interior immigration enforcement executive order uh, in the way of the DHS moratorium, uh, that is currently uh, subject to litigation. And I think there is news in process this morning um, uh, about the 100-day moratorium and how the federal government actually needs to, uh, the Biden administration that is, uh, needs to provide more evidence to the court um, uh, in terms of how that 100-day moratorium mm. will work. Deep Gulasakram, I'd love to get your thoughts on that legal challenge as well. This is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filing suit on the grounds that the Biden administration needed to consult with certain states First, could you explain how that, that came to be and what you think of how the lawsuit is moving right now? Sure. So this all came about because a few days, actually, I think a couple of weeks before the transition to President Biden, the waning days of the Trump administration, uh, some members of DHS, who themselves, I should point out, were illegally appointed as courts have held, entered into agreements with several states and some sub-state agencies, maybe at the local level, in which uh, they agreed that the DHS under Trump agreed that they would not change enforcement in those states without first consulting with those states. So giving essentially the state of Texas uh, a right to object to any immigration changes by the Biden administration. So that's the basis of these agreements. At the time they were signed, uh, most legal experts, including myself, would tell you that they were novel, and not novel in some innovative, brilliant way, but novel only in the, in the sense that they had not been used before, but were completely unenforceable. 
that is the basis upon which Texas, those agreements though, were the basis upon which the Texas Attorney General went to court to try and stop the 100-day moratorium uh, that Professor Wong was, was alluding to. That there was a hearing in that case this morning. Now, it's not clear to me what exactly the court is uh, trying to assess here. As a general matter, I, I think that it is patently absurd to believe that the an outgoing agency can direct and bind the discretionary enforcement choices of an incoming agency. This would, in effect, give Texas and the other states the ability to control how resources are allocated, immigration resources are allocated, uh, how funding is allocated, and that's simply the tail wagging the dog. That's not how uh, immigration policy works. That's not how any policy works and for good reason. Tom is right that the district court asked the federal government in defense of the moratorium to provide more evidence. Certainly the federal government can do so, but simply as a legal matter, these sorts of agreements don't really make a lot of sense to me. Uh, Tom is right that in the Trump administration states, progressive states like California were involved in litigation against the federal government. The state of California, Javier Becerra was actively involved in lots of litigation against Trump era uh, policies. But this is not the exact, this is not the equivalent. Uh, and I don't, I think it's a false equivalency to draw uh, the, the progressive state suits against the Trump administration and suits like Texas against uh, the now incoming, uh, the now nascent Biden administration. Doesn't sound like you think it has much merit. We're talking with Deep Sacrum, professor of law at Santa Clara University. He teaches constitutional and immigration law. And Tom K. Wong, associate professor of political science and founding director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. You, our listeners, are with us again, 866-733-6786. If you want to join the conversation by phone, you can comment on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Wallace writes... What are the challenges faced by immigrants from countries Trump targeted with his bans? I'm assuming the travel bans he's talking about here, Deep Gulasekar. I'm wondering if you could share with us what struck you about uh, the revocation of the travel ban, essentially the travel bans that Trump put in place by Biden's executive orders. So a couple of things are striking. First is the the commitment in the in the uh, rescinding of those bans to the idea that the United States is not uh, is not supposed to under its underneath its constitution be discriminating on the basis of race on the basis of religion on the basis of national origin and so making that quite clear, I think, is an important symbolic move. It obviously has very important effects for the individuals affected by those bans, including family members, citizens in the United States whose family members, they, who, who they were kept away from their family members. The other thing that I think is notable is when you look at the rescission of those bans, the Biden executive orders, they still talk about making sure that the vetting of individuals is important, that the vetting procedures by those countries is important, which always, which goes to show the truth mm -hmm. that has always been there. That is that the United States can engage in uh, important immigration vetting, national security vetting, without having to rely on aspects of religion, on national origin, which most people will tell you, anybody who researches will tell you, is a poor proxy for national security problems. Well, let me go to caller Susan in Berkeley. Hi, Susan. Hi, Mina. Hi, what's on your mind? Uh, thanks for your uh, forum. I really love having you on. Um, oh, I'm a psychologist who uh, 
whose office is in the East Bay, but I've been helping immigrants with their cases. Their lawyers send them to me for psychological evaluations. And uh, I've been doing this for 17 years, and I have helped with over 1,400 asylum cases. And mm-hmm. so I've been able to see up close from the inside how everything operates. I wouldn't say how it works. Um, ICE has been functioning, especially during the Trump era, as though it were the American Gestapo. And it it is completely untethered, and it has committed so many horrific human rights violations. I have children on my caseload right now who are so terrified of ICE because of how their father was handled when ICE came and and took him away without uh, being accountable in any way. And uh, in fact, of all the ICE people that I've worked with over the years, I've only encountered two of them were, who were human beings in the San Francisco ERO. I, I, I think also that the support system needs to be overhauled. All of the immigration judges are administrative law judges who are appointed and work for the attorney general. They are not an independent judiciary. And in fact, one of the really great judges in San Francisco has said again and again that doing asylum cases is like doing a death penalty case in traffic court. And so there are many bad actors along the way who exhibit a kind of well-enabled form of white supremacy. All of our immigration laws are very steeped in white supremacy. And this goes, people who are brown and black and uh, indigenous from any other part of the world get much worse treatment than Irish people or Canadian people or French people. Well, Susan, thanks for, I appreciate you sharing your experiences and perspective. I'm curious, just before you leave us, do you think efforts at comprehensive immigration reform, do you think this will address some of the things that you're facing? I think that it's a beginning. Mm. Uh, There are some very simple things like annual caps that were established in 96 by a Republican Congress that you can only pass so many cases a year. If those caps were eliminated, a lot of the clog in the immigration courts could be reduced. But I think that it's very much going to be dependent on reducing and getting rid of the Senate filibuster rule, because otherwise, how can anything get passed? Yes. Well, let's dig into this bill and its chances for passage. You know, Tom Wong, we heard that President Biden's immigration reform bill to Congress would create a pathway to citizenship for some 11 million undocumented immigrants. It would also provide a faster three-year path for dreamers, farm workers, immigrants with temporary protected status from countries suffering from major natural disasters and so on. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the elements of this immigration reform bill that you think are really worth noting? Yeah, so... Um, we don't have bill language yet, so that is still forthcoming, but the framework for the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill uh, mirrors what we saw in 2013 uh, with S744, uh, which the Senate did pass. Um, it just was never taken up by the House. So the what we know about the contours of uh, the 2021 iteration of the comprehensive immigration reform debate, uh, we'll see a earned pathway to legal status. And I think this is important to note because we've seen 
already opposition from uh, folks like Republican Senator Marco Rubio talking about amnesty. And I think the point cannot be made enough that uh, after two decades of uh, debate over comprehensive immigration reform, we've landed on language about an earned pathway to citizenship, that there is no blanket amnesty, that individuals will have to, for example, pay background, or sorry, pass background checks, uh, pay any back taxes owed, et cetera, mm. uh, in order to be on this pathway. Um, what I am actually interested in seeing is how the um, sort of management of the border uh, plays out in the 2021 version of comprehensive immigration reform. So in 2013, nearly 70 senators, and uh, if, if, if folks recall, there were, there were 53 Democratic senators in 2013, so a slim majority, not, 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 significantly higher than the 50-50 split that we see today. Uh, but nearly 70 uh, senators voted yes on that comprehensive immigration reform bill. Uh, many attribute that large number to the 40 plus billion dollars in border spending for uh, physical barriers, technology and increased personnel. Uh, immigration advocates at the time really decried that um, large spending because some folks saw it as essentially, um, you know, sacrificing border communities uh, and increasing the military militarization of border communities in exchange for that pathway to legal status. And so that may very well be what we see um, in the upcoming conversation over immigration reform in terms of how we get uh, potentially uh, 60 plus senators on board to be able to invoke cloture. Uh, but the last caller uh, made the point that a lot of people are talking about not just in the immigration space, but in other contexts as well, that the Democratic majority has the, 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 the opportunity if it wants to go for the so-called nuclear option uh, and change precedents such that a simple majority uh, would be needed to do something like pass immigration reform. But the pathway to, to, to legal status will dominate um, and there will be horse trading done and mostly over border security. Mm. We're talking about President Biden's immigration plan with Deep Sacrum and Tom K. Wong. And we'll have more with you, our listeners. After the break, you can always join by emailing forum at kqed.org, calling us at 866-733-6786, or posting your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about President Biden's immigration plan and what it could mean for California. I mean, just from Ed sources, 
report recently by Zadie Stavely, some 750,000 K-12 students in California schools are estimated to have an undocumented parent and an additional 145,000 students, 3 to 17 years old, enrolled in California schools are undocumented themselves. According to California Senator Alex Padilla, no state has more at stake in getting a comprehensive immigration plan done than the state of California. And helping us dig into that is Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UCSD, and Deep Gulasekram, Professor at Law of, at Santa Clara University. You, our listeners, can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or emailing your questions to forum at kqed.org. Hong writes, I'm all for a path for citizenship, but I think legal immigrants who are here already should be prioritized. Many have been waiting for over a decade. I myself received a PhD in this country and have been working from day one. It took me 10 years to get my green card. Deep Kulasekram, your reaction to that? I don't think most immigration advocates would object to the idea that people who are lawfully here in the country should be able to, as the statute already provides, to take advantage of the opportunity to become citizens in the United States. Uh, the question here really is a separate one, and that is that the immigration system has produced at this point 10 to 11 million people here without lawful status. I think anybody who studies this issue for a, even a short period of time will tell you that you cannot enforce your way out of that problem. Uh, the statistics that you just cited point to how integrated unlawfully present people are into the citizen population. Mixed status families are the norm. So by all accounts, this is a group that many, in which many people are going to remain, whether they be in the shadow population or in the legal population. I think the better public policy is one that recognizes that fact and provides an earned path to lawful status. So Deep, could you also talk a little bit more about how dream workers, farm workers, those with temporary protected status would be eligible for green cards immediately under this proposal and then citizenship in about three years? I mean, the impact of that on the farm worker community and, and whether or not ag employers, agriculture employers support this. Yeah, that's a it's a it's a good question. It's a complicated question. One of the things that uh, some of my past research has found is that even when you have large institutional corporate interests that are generally uh, in, in locations and jurisdictions that are generally conservative, when you have meatpacking industries, when you have large agricultural interests, you tend to get a push for some, some types of immigrant-friendly legislation. Here, I think there's an opportunity, with, especially with regards to the pandemic. Many of the, the non-citizens in those sectors might be unlawfully present, but they're also essential workers in the ag force, in the meatpacking industry. And so I think that it makes sense to really focus on that group, uh, to think about ways in which they might be uh, found to to get lawful status. They, they are contributing. They're in fact making basic essential work that we need, especially at this moment. Well, the other aspect of this proposal that I was struck by was the $4 billion aid package for Central American countries to try to address the root causes of migration. You know, we're talking about gang violence, poverty, and so on, Tom Wong. First, $4 billion, is that enough? And, and will governments use that in the way that the U.S. would want? Well, $4 billion is probably not enough, but... The $4 billion represents a start, 
to hopefully more fruitful uh, bilateral and multilateral cooperation with our neighbors in Central America, uh, you know, during the Biden administration. The, the focus on addressing root causes is very welcomed by the Biden administration, because when we sort of think back about the four years of the Trump administration, it was really sort of our way or the highway in terms of how the Trump administration um, sort of used immigration as a wedge to negotiate with uh, our partners to the South across Latin America. And so when we think about the uh, headlines uh, when it comes to Central Americans coming to the U.S., then what we're really talking about isn't immigration per se, but uh, asylum flows. And to the extent that we can be working with Central American countries, especially those in the Northern Triangle, to identify individuals who have a well-founded fear of persecution and create a process that admits them into the US as refugees rather than seeking asylum at the southern border, then those you know, two things, uh, the um, sort of attention to root causes, as well as the creation of some formal mechanisms to work with our Central American partners to identify refugees and admit them would be uh, represent leaps and bounds um, uh, in terms of progress uh, relative to the Trump administration. So when we think about the, the current Central American caravan uh, coming to the US, the Trump administration, as well as the Obama administration, I should say, um, sort of look to our immediate partner to the South, Mexico, to essentially increase enforcement uh, at Mexico's southern borders to prevent uh, those kinds of, uh, you know, asylum seekers or those kinds of asylum phenomenons uh, from um, leading to a quote-unquote surge at the southern border. And it may very well be the case that the Biden administration adopts both the Obama and the Trump playbook by um, essentially giving resources primarily to Mexico to increase enforcement. Um, but because we have um, the opportunity, uh, or at least the Biden administration has the opportunity to use immigration policy to show the world that we are once again that shining city on the hill, then hopefully the Biden administration doesn't repeat past my mistakes by trying to quote unquote manage Central American asylum flows through increased enforcement. Um, but that, that remains to be seen. It does remain to be seen. I mean, Deep Gula Sacrum, we know that while the Department of Homeland Security has announced that it's not enrolling any more people, for example, in President Trump's migrant protection protocols, that's the, the protocols that sent tens of thousands of asylum seekers back to Mexico while they await hearings, there isn't, if I'm understanding correctly, really any mention of what happens to those who are already enrolled so far. I mean, some 30,000 people south of the border. That's right. I mean, I think we still have to wait for a lot of details to emerge. The border is, uh, it's messy. It's messy demographically. It's messy in terms of the human rights violations that might occur uh, in terms of managing the flow. And many of the executive orders, including the priority enforcement memoranda that, uh, that you were beginning the discussion uh, talking to Tom about, 
essentially have an exception for border enforcement. And um, even right now, there are what, what are known as Title 42 exclusions. These are the exclusions based on coronavirus and the, the possibility of COVID transmission. Those are still in effect at the southern border. And so uh, there's a lot left to be sorted out uh, as to what is going to happen at the border with the people who were formerly a part of the, quote, remain in Mexico. Uh, program. I, I think to go back to your prior question to Tom, though, one of the things you might think about as the administration thinks about uh, aid to Central American countries and trying to treat root causes is to think about the push factors, the factors that force people to flee a place, uh, places in Central America or other countries to come to the United States. And so uh, while nothing I'm su suggesting tells us what's going to happen specifically at the border, I think that is part of the push of looking to those countries is to see if you can control some of the push factors that bring people to the United States. And that's somewhat related to this listener's point. Beth writes, while I 100% support citizenship for all DACA recipients, how would a pathway to citizenship work for others without causing a flood of new undocumented immigrants trying to come here? There are already reports of people south of the border trying to get to our border because they think Biden will simply allow them in. Tom K. Wong, your reaction to Beth's comment here? Yeah, I mean, there is, uh, I guess, a more technical term, which is moral hazard. Economists use it to um, evaluate risk. And the basic idea here uh, when applied to legal status is that if the, you know, if the U.S. is considering a, a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, will that incentivize more undocumented immigrants to come to the U.S.? And my research as well as others in the literature suggests no. So the reason being is because most of these proposals, whether it be the IRCA legalization in 1986 uh, or the sort of smaller scale legalization programs, including DACA, uh, which is not legal status, but you know, temporary relief from deportation. Um, the empirical evidence does not show that this increases unauthorized flows. So you can take a series of different metrics at the southern border, whether it be apprehensions uh, or interior uh, apprehensions as well the data just do not support the fact that a program that provides some kind of lawful status or even a debate in Congress, which has also been looked at, about something like comprehensive immigration reform uh, increases the kinds of flows um, that the listener is concerned about. So the one of one of the things that are baked in to these proposals is a certain date so for example if one imagines the 2021 iteration of comprehensive immigration reform this path to legal status will be for those individuals who are in the u.s before a certain date specifically to address this uh, issue of moral hazard and if we think back to 2012 and daca uh, one had to be in the u.s uh, five years prior to the announcement of DACA. In other words, one had to continuously reside and also be present in the U.S. Uh, from 2007 onward in order to be eligible for DACA. So there is an issue, though, when it comes to the misinformation that may be spread about who is potentially eligible uh, for these programs. And that is something that 
uh, can be addressed through, you know, bilateral and multilateral cooperation. So when we think about the eight-year pathway to citizenship, there will be uh, certain criteria that excludes individuals who are recently arrived uh, or arrived to the U.S. Uh, without authorization after a certain date. And so smugglers uh, have an incentive, as they have done in the past, to essentially say the U.S. is open. If you get in, you will get legal status. And so this is where um, the sort of bilateral, multilateral uh, cooperation um, you know, with partners, not just in Central America, but around the world, uh, really can come in to, to be effective at sort of combating this mis misinformation. Um, because we know that, you know, some actors are incentivized uh, to spread such misinformation. But I would just direct the listener to sort of look at uh, the DHS annual immigration yearbook that has uh, dozens of different metrics about um, you know, immigration enforcement at the border, as well as in the interior of the United States, and simply plot over time the numbers. And those numbers aren't really predicted by things like the 86 legalization or 2012's DACA, or even debates in Congress about uh, broader comprehensive immigration reform. And again, Tom K. Wong is Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. He served as an advisor to the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under President Obama. Deep Gulasekram is Professor of Law at Santa Clara University. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Shay in San Jose. Hi, Shay. Hi. Um, I was just curious if this immigration reform um, bill or project or um, I forgot the right verbiage, but anyway, is going to be looking down the road, I guess, on the flip side of things and have some um, community cultural awareness as, you know, we have like more cultures here in the United States. If um, the community could also take part in welcoming everybody and have us like learn the language and culture and all of that of um, mm. everyone, that way we can be more, more welcoming to everybody. Shay, thanks. Deep Glissacrum, I don't think it includes necessarily a specific provision around that, but it does sort of frame it differently, right? <laughs> Immigration differently and our understanding of it for the United States. Yeah, so to the listener's specific question, the there are only some press releases and some overall summary points of what the bill might contain. None of that thus far contains the specifics that the listener is asking about. That said, I think there are some very important symbolic integration focused aspects. One of them being that the bill itself and even the executive orders that have been issued use the word non-citizen as opposed to alien. That itself, I think, is a significant change. Words matter framing matters. And I think the idea that we would stop calling people alien, a vestige of really 1800s, 1700s statutory uh, invention, and start talking about people as non-citizens, as people, I think changes the way in which we might think about that. The other thing that I would say, uh, especially for a place like California, is that integration efforts and uh, those sorts of programs and education efforts are something that oftentimes this is where you get great partnerships between the federal government and state and local governments, where state and local governments can really play an important role in that integrative effort. 
Well, we're getting some more reactions from listeners. Michael writes, the illegal status of those essential workers makes them desirable to employers because of fear of deportation keeps them from protesting poor wages or working conditions. And Abe writes, I think any proposal should include severe financial penalties to a company that hires an undocumented worker or one who uses false documentation. Danielle writes, if there is a change in administration in four years, could that affect this plan if it passes. I mean, Deep Gulasikar, quickly, where do you put the chances of this pan, this plan passing or what gets saved under negotiation if this is sort of like the opening, uh, the opening point of negotiation for the Biden administration? Uh, because as Tom was alluding to, it does not necessarily include a lot in terms of security at the border other than um, other than technology, mentions of technology being used to secure the border. And that has often been something that Republicans are looking for. Right. So right now is the search for uh, 10 Republicans to get to 60 uh, people who in the Senate who will vote for this bill and, and prevent the filibuster from stopping it. Now, there are some other procedural mechanisms that can be used to overcome uh, overcome that 60-vote threshold, or as Tom alluded to earlier, there is always the option, the nuclear option of taking away the filibuster altogether. But one could think of this as the opening gambit, the opening gambit in a negotiation in which maybe you're going to get uh, some claims for enforcement heavy um, aspects to this to, to be added, maybe lengthening the time uh, for legalization or earned pathways to citizenship. So we'll see if there is a final version in which you can convince at least 10 Republicans from the Senate to, to join. Uh, I don't know what the, what the chances of that are, but that's what we're looking at, unless you go to some of the nuclear options. Well, Tom, we just have 20 seconds or so, but you know, how much pressure do you think the Biden administration is under to pass this, especially with its own base, given the, the criticisms of President Obama, his deportations, his record deportations as Biden served as vice president? Yeah, I think that uh, there's immense pressure on the Biden administration. And to the last caller's point, um, some insider baseball will probably see the National Office for New Americans as part of the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill. But it's not just the Obama era record of um, immigration enforcement, but it's this legacy that Trump has left that the Biden administration has to address. So those two things combined make immigration reform, in my view, make or break for the Biden administration. Wow. Tom Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science at UCSD, Deep Gulasikram, Professor of Law at Santa Clara University. Thanks to both of you. Thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segment and to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.